Shelley Schlender. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, July 5th, 2016. Coming up, there's a new antibiotic underway, made from nanoparticles, known as quantum dots. CU BioFrontier scientist Prashant Nagpal and Anishree Cherji will explain their new invention. And the ozone hole over Antarctica is shrinking. We'll find out why and how. From Birgit Hassler, she's a scientist at the Cooperative Institute for Research in Environmental Sciences. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender. Nearly 75 years ago, penicillin first saved the life of someone dying from pneumonia. This success launched an era when antibiotics helped people live longer, reduced disease outbreaks, made surgery safer. Then the microbes started to become resistant to the drugs. Today, antibiotics are so widely overused and microbes adapt so quickly, there are superbugs resistant to every strain of antibiotics known to man. Creating new versions of antibiotics typically takes years. And CU Boulder scientist Prashant Nagpal points out, all the time, the superbugs are adapting. By the time you introduce a drug, you know, our systems are that way, that we want everybody to be safe. We don't want unsafe compounds to be introduced into the market. But that means it takes years for the trials and the drugs to come out in the market. By the time it does, they develop resistance to it because they learn fast. They can change their entire DNA very easily and they can fight and they survive. Not Paul says drug discovery today can't keep up with the superbugs. So he has an idea. Let's develop a system that can adapt, if not faster, at least at the same rate as the microbes. At CU Boulder's BioFrontier Institute, Nagpal's team is working on a different approach than biological drugs. They're developing quantum dots, basically incredibly tiny circuit boards that may someday be able to be ingested or injected into the human body to attack and kill superbugs. We have these small nanoparticles, which are actually no much smaller than cells. They are Mm -hmm. 20,000 times smaller. So they have no problem getting inside a cell or anything that they want to get into. And what do they look like? Are they little fighter jets or are they like little round balls? (laughs) They look like tiny little round balls. And we can show you some images where we try to see them with electron micrographs. And we'll show you an instrument that allows us to do this. People have been making these nanoparticles for some time, but they were mainly experimented with for like consumer electronics in a camera on top of our rooftops. But what we've shown here is you could use the same semiconductors, shrink them down and put them inside cells. And if you do the job well, if they have very, very well tailored species that they can generate when light hits them, they can very selectively kill these cells and not harm our host cells, our mammalian cells. In his lab, Nagpal showed tiny cylinders, no bigger than half of your pinky. In this tiny little tube, you would have millions and millions of dots. And how many dots do you need to fight an infection? This could easily be the entire therapy that you need. So they're all tiny little balls in water, so these are all in aqueous solutions. While the tiny vials look like clear liquid, under an ultraviolet light, suddenly there are a huge range of fluorescent, 
bright colors. There's a sort of more blue, green, yellow, and then shades of orange. These colors are more than beautiful. Each color represents a slightly different size of nanoparticle, smaller or larger by one atom. These different sizes can influence how the nanoparticle will fight a superbug. If we take an atom or add an atom, that changes their properties completely. And this color essentially tells us a little bit about you know, what their band gap is, and then we test them, obviously, more extensively to figure out which radicals can these quantum dots make. Prashant's colleague, Sam Goodman, says the different sizes and colors are made in a very simple way. Well, for these dots specifically, it's actually pretty easy. We take our two uh, constituent materials, our cadmium metal and our tellurium counter ion, mix them together in water, and then we heat them up to about 100 degrees for about an hour to make green dots, two hours to make yellow dots, and five to six hours to make red dots. Goodman says it's basically a matter of boiling water. 100 degrees Celsius is boiling water. So you heat them up to boiling water. Yep, and that's you need to get to that high temperature to actually get the two materials to combine and form the quantum dots. And did you say that one of these materials is telluride? Yes, it's tellurium. <laughs> tellurium. What is tellurium? I know of it as a ski place and a place to hear jazz. But Yeah, and actually the town is named after minerals that contain elemental tellurium. It goes into Colorado's whole history of mining. But tellurium is actually a pretty heavy element. It is in the same section as oxygen and sulfur. It's just a heavier uh, version of that, so it has similar chemical properties. So it's sort of like a cousin to oxygen and sulfur. It is. It has the same kind of charge, so it can engage in the same kind of chemistry with the uh, different metals that we're using. With this knowledge of the metals used to make the nanoparticle quantum dots that might someday help us fight superbugs, comes a Pandora's box of questions about how safe it is, or is not, to add even small amounts of nanoparticles to the human body. Even for doing something important, like fighting a deadly microbial infection. After all, tellurium and cadmium are basically poisons that you're not supposed to put in your body. This led to a discussion with Prashad Nagpal, along with his colleague and wife, Anushree Cheriji. Are these biological particles or are these... Little semiconductor particles. These are semiconductor particles, and we are very well aware that, you know, we have to see the effect that these particles have to our body. But one thing I would like to point out is that we use them at such small doses that even for our body's defense mechanism and other things that it might attack, they will go virtually undetected. We've grown in our test tubes, we've used such small concentrations and seen like 92% effect that our mammalian cells and other cells that we could test in the tubes, the human cells, they were growing just fine. They they didn't even detect that these particles were, were there. And so am I right to picture a particle that is programmed to go stick to the microbes that it's attacking? and squirt them with stuff that mm -hmm. kills the microbe mm -hmm. and then uh, move on to another one and so that one little tiny particle Can could kill. kill. How many little micro particles do you think? That's a great question and that's exactly what we tried to show in these tiny test tubes that the particles were outnumbered by the number of bacteria that they were trying to kill. 
and over the course of eight hours or more that we've tested them, they would just kill one cell and then move on. So these can kill multiple cells as long as they are stable. And eventually they lose their effectiveness. Unfortunately, right now they lose their effectiveness. And since you talked about, you know, how, how our bodies would get rid of this, once you inject them intravenously, they can do their job and our body flushes out because we have a mechanism where we flush out, you know, used water and stuff. So we envision, and again, all of this needs to be tested right now. This is sort of the cusp of this discovery. We have to test how, how little animals react to it how humans react to it. So all these clinical studies do need to be done very carefully. I read a story once about a man who liked to show that he could eat anything. Yeah. And he actually ate a grocery cart wow. <laughs> okay. you know, where, where he cut it into little tiny particles and swallowed it and it went through his digestive tract and he just demonstrated really you can send anything through the human digestive <laughs> tract. <laughs> The man who ate shopping carts was Michel Lotito. Over his lifetime, he also ate, tiny bite by bite, a Cessna airplane, and frequently light bulbs. A lot of light bulbs. Here's the sound from a video on YouTube of Lotito crunching and swallowing light bulbs. Mm. While it may seem incredible that a person could eat a light bulb without dying, at least the light bulb stayed in the digestive tract. Prashant Nagpal and Cheraji envisioned nanoparticles that would go into the bloodstream. But that's the kind of concern and yep. wonder that I have is, even though they're tiny, is there some way that they could get lodged in some place where they start yep. to cause chain reactions that start to harm the body in an unanticipated way. way. Yeah, it is possible. And again, that's why we need more clear clinical trials for us to be able to test this. So that is a concern, potential concern, because anytime you put anything in, in, in your body, even food that we think is completely safe, it go, if it goes and lodges into, you know, unintended places that can potentially harm us. And that's what these clinical trials would address. So far, this team of researchers has documented that their quantum dots don't harm mammalian cells. So far, they only harm microbes. We have the blower so, going oh up. my gosh, this is the real stuff here. Yep. <laughs> this is, this is, okay, these Petri dishes contain deadly bugs. Yep. Cherenji wears gloves and a lab coat when she works with these superbugs. Plus, she says her lab's biosafety vents keep the superbugs from getting out. So, so you don't need just, to worry, nothing's yeah, coming out of here. Air. These are strains that we got from the University of Colorado Medical School. In fact, you've described that these strains are really deadly. These are the ones that antibiotics can't fight right now. No. And you have them in your lab. That's a little scary. <laughs> well, it's a bit scary, but you know, we have the right safety protocols in place, so we can work around them. But the very interesting thing is that the strains that we have, and so we picked a lot of these nasty strains in this particular piece of work, they are resistant to, in some cases, more than 20 different antibiotics. Uh, different ones. That really shows you the degree of resistance. And they can actually live in pretty high levels of antibiotics. So that's another uh, scary uh, metric because not only can they survive, but they can actually thrive in presence of antibiotics. Yet these superbugs that thrive while swimming in antibiotics are quickly killed by Prashant Nagpal's quantum dots. In preliminary tests with a living creature, a roundworm called C. elegans, the roundworms thrived while the superbugs died.
As for just what weapons the little nanoparticles wield in order to kill the microbes, Nagpal says it's surprisingly simple. We've trained them how to use oxygen and water, and they're all around us. They're inside our body. We don't need any material, like you said, you know, we don't have to pack explosives or anything. They just use oxygen and water, and they create these radical species that specifically harm these microbes. But these species are not harmful for mammalian cells, our host, our human cells. Well, I thought that mammalian cells, human cells, can also be damaged by excess oxygen Absolutely. and excess free radical compounds that will harm the body. Absolutely. But are our cells a little bit better than the microbes at fighting off these kind of free radicals? Well, kind of. Every cell has different susceptibility, so that's where we started. We started with radical susceptibility of these cells. That, that was sort of the beginning of this invention. It started off from like single molecule genetics where we were studying this. And then we saw, oh, these bugs are more susceptible to, to these particular radical species. And our mammalian cells are more adept at this. And to focus the fighting power of the quantum dots, the scientists say they've designed them to only activate in the presence of light so that if there was a liver infection, the light would go near the liver. If it was an infection on the leg, the light could be pointed at the leg. Your bodies are very transparent to light. So the, the light can actually penetrate in your body much deeper than, than you would potentially think. Okay, so somebody would be lying on the doctor's bed and the doctor would take a little light pencil and go zzzz. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and you can localize, as Anushri said, the, the mechanism. You can trigger them in certain regions. Like if there is an infection close to the liver, you can just... Mm -hmm you know, shine that light wand close to the liver and they would be completely benign through the rest of the body. So we've thought about some of these questions. We, of course, are, we would love to have the opportunity to test their effect, how do they travel within clinical trials. And then with uh, obviously a few years worth of work, we would have the comprehensive set of data, whether this actually is the next big solution against the fight for antibiotic drugs. If quantum dots turn out to be a solution, then as the superbugs adapt, a new set of the nanoparticles better tailored to kill the superbugs might be made within hours or days, rather than in the years it takes to make new drugs today. And the new quantum dots could be produced for pennies on the dollar compared to regular antibiotics. Still, even if these therapies work, they're probably more than a decade or two away. So in the meantime, and no matter what, you might want to invest in the best weapon any of us has right now against infectious disease. It's your own healthy body and its ability to adapt and change and fight. For the sake of your body, get enough sleep, exercise, eat right, take care of your health, and don't overuse antibiotics. For How on Earth, I'm Shelley Schlender. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. Like a lot of things that have at least two sides, ozone can be good and bad. The good ozone occurs in the stratosphere. That's the layer that extends upwards from about 10 to 30 miles above the Earth. It's good because it shields us from the sun's harmful ultraviolet rays, UVB in particular. 
The bad ozone is basically smog, and it occurs in the troposphere, between the Earth's skin and 10 miles into the sky. Well, you've probably heard about the hole in the good ozone. It was first detected several decades ago. A new study, published in the journal Science last week, brings good news. A hole in the, the hole in the ozone over Antarctica has started to heal. That is, more good ozone is appearing, so the hole is basically shrinking. Dr. Birgit Hassler is an atmospheric scientist with the Cooperative Institute for Research in Environmental Sciences in Boulder. She's based out of NOAA, that's the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, a mouthful, also here in Boulder. Dr. Hassler is not co-author on this study, but she's studied stratospheric ozone for many years. And she spent many frigid days and nights at the bottom of the world measuring ozone concentrations. So Dr. Hassler, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Why don't we jump into basically the punchline? I know you're not co-author on the study, but as we said, you've done a lot of this work yourself and you were in the acknowledgments on the study. What, what was the finding? What's the gist of it? Well, the study shows that the ozone hole that appears on a regular basis every year in spring over Antarctica is actually... Is austral spring, so that's we're talking austral spring, fall, exactly. Right? Yep. yep, between September, October, November, um, that that hole is actually not as bad as it used to be. That's basically the finding of this study. It, you can prove that the, m the measures that had been taken to make sure that the ozone layer is not going to be destroyed totally, that was with the Montreal Protocol and the bans of the chemical. And the, the Montreal Protocol, this is what, 1987, the yep. big international yes. treaty that banned chlorofluorocarbons, yep. CFCs. and. Yep. And those are, were used anyway pervasively, right? In a lot of refrigeration? Yes, and um, re refrigerators, air conditioning units, in hairspray bottles. And uh, yeah, so they were banned. And from there on, people were waiting for the news to hear that that a ban and that Montreal Protocol had an effect. And that study showed it. They, can sh they showed it with like statistical significance that yes, we can actually see that the ozone hole is not getting worse anymore. It's getting better. And that's despite the fact that we have periodic volcanoes, which are sort of natural contributors yes. to this ozone hole, right? Yes. So the, volcan the volcanic particles that uh, can be, depending on which volcano we're talking about and where the location is and how big the volcano is, mm. um, that those particles can reach the stratosphere. And if they do, they can be transported to the poles and especially over Antarctica, they have the effect that that uh, ozone depleting um, reactions that can happen in spring or that happening that are happening in spring, um, they can be enhanced through those particles. And in this case, so it's building off of work that has also shown there's been some shrinking, if that's the right word, <laughs> in the hole. Well, how does this really add to what's out there, including your own research, your own studies this in is recent years? This is one of the first studies to show it uh, in September, where you have less uh, metro metrological variability, less temperature fluctuations, less wind fluctuations. So less so noise from other factors? Less noise, exactly. Yeah. So you can actually see with a really good um, statistical significance that... Um, that there is a signal that the chemistry does not uh, deplete ozone as badly as it used to be, and that is based on the reduction of those uh, chemicals that were banned with the Montreal Protocol. So this is really good news. I'm, I'm really curious, 
because I've been to what they consider the banana belt in Antarctica, okay. the Western Antarctic Peninsula. Well, that's really warm compared with the South Pole, where yes. you and, and these guys, and by the way, I should say this is led by Dr. Susan Solomon, yeah. one of the IPCC yes. awardees, winners, and she was here with Noah right before going to exactly. MIT, and you've done a lot of work with her. But So what's it like down there, way down there? <laughs> We're talking the very bottom of the world and yeah. how you actually take these measurements. Um, I was fortunate enough that I was allowed to go to the South Pole, which is 90 south, the bottom of the Earth, really. You cannot go any further south than that, um, for about two weeks. That was in 2012, um, in summer, which is, of course, December, because it's also summer. Um, at that point, you talk about daylight uh, or temperatures around uh, minus 20 degrees Celsius, and I'm sorry I'm talking in Celsius here, but... <laughs> I'm still not really I used know. to the Fahrenheit, but fuck in the trend. <laughs> but um, so that's relatively warm. You can have like really, really cold temperatures during winter time when there is no sun up. At the South Pole, you have um, the sun is up above the horizon, the same at the same angle, 24 hours a day, or 24 hours a night, depending mm -hmm. on if it's day or night. And um, while I was there in, in December, it was 24 hours a day. And you can see the sun just traveling across the horizon. And it's the same distance to the horizon all the time. That is, that is incredible. That blew my mind. It's tough to sleep in those yes. conditions. Yes. <laughs> <They have laughs> Not really only because it's just this gorgeous sunset all the no. time. Right? They have uh, really good uh, blinds to block the windows because otherwise it would just be light 24 mm -hmm. hours. And then it's hard to sleep. And it's so hard to sleep anyway because it's very high. The South Pole itself, the altitude of the South Pole is more than 9,000 foot, which is like really high. It makes it really hard to sleep. And it's very, very white, yes. right? Yes. Little signs, do you see little penguins commuting across 90, no. 90 like south? At 90 <laughs> south, there is nothing. There is like the only living things are humans. There is like probably not even a lot of bacteria around naturally, I, I would suspect. But yeah, it's a very hostile environment, and it's that's why, you know, you have to make sure that uh, the station is always running properly. That they have like backups for generators, for water supply, and everything, so just to make sure that, like, whoever is there can survive because it's uh, like it's just flat and white, and yeah. And so the, this hole that had been huge but is essentially shrinking, yeah, affects us all. Talk about like how this affects us in the northern hemisphere as well, or simply between the poles. I know it's more pronounced than yes. at the South Pole yes. above Antarctica, right? So the thing is that the ozone hole is just a sign of the whole problem that was uh, present or is still present. You have the chlorofluorocarbons that uh, destroy ozone, can destroy ozone, and they react best in a cold environment when the sun, come, when the sun is back. And so you see the, the biggest effect over Antarctica, but mm. like the ozone depletion of the ozone layer is um, also present in the mid latitudes, for example, over Boulder. And you can see that in several time, you know, in, in uh, measurements from different stations all over the world that you have ozone depletion or you had ozone depletion over the last decades. So it's sort of a double whammy for us because here we are at higher elevation, so we're more exposed to UV yes. anyway. Yes. And then you've got this hole. Yeah. 
but it's better. Does that mean we don't need to wear quite as much sunscreen? That will take still a, a few years uh, until it's so much better that it was. It's back to the levels of like 1980 before, like the ozone hole was discovered, or where you s would say that that's the baseline before ozone depletion, the big ozone depletion happened. So we're not out of the woods yet? Not totally. It will take a few more years. And will it take just a continuation of compliance with the Montreal Protocol, yeah. with the banning of the chemicals, yes. and anything else? Other than saying volcanoes, take a break. Well, climate change also, you know, kind of changes the whole system of the the stratosphere and the, the troposphere. So that can change things a little, but the predictions are in 2050, 2060, we should be back uh, to the ozone layer like it was in 1980. And so anything super surprising for you in this case? In the study, you mean? Yeah. Um, I like the, that they actually looked at the, the ozone in September, not October, like everybody else did. That is that is a smart, smart move. And are you hoping to go back there sometime soon? To Antarctica? Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> That's great. Love of the ice. Well, thank you so much. That was Dr. Birgit Hassler. She's an atmospheric scientist with the Cooperative Institute for Research in Environmental Sciences in Boulder, and she's based out of NOAA. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You're welcome. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. Today's show was produced by me. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Shelley Schlender. Compliments, GarageBand. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Shelley Schlender. <laughs>